worked for SCORE for about four and a half years. Pedri has 10 years experience in the life industry and he's a fellow of the Actual Society of South Africa. He's married with a 15-month-old daughter. Dwayne um, is the chief underwriter for SCORE. Um, he's got 23 years of underwriting experience at different companies in the South African market. Um, and he's a member of the ASISA Medical Underwriting and Standards Committee. So I'm going to hand over to, to Dwayne to start. Good morning. Sorry, can you guys hear me? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, just want to thank ASA for uh, providing us with the opportunity to come and present the presentation today on non-disclosure. Um, <clears throat> I believe we're up against an awesome speaker next door, so thank you very much for choosing us. <laughs> Ooh, sorry about that. Um, so let's kick off if this clicker works. Hello, Mr. Techie Man. Sorry. Okay, so starting off, um, some of you guys may have, oh, sorry, I apologize for the, the image quality here, it's not particularly good and, and don't really read the text, it's not really important either. Um, some of you may have seen this article um, in the media, it's fairly recent, um, relates to insurer X that didn't pay a claim because uh, they had picked up non-disclosure. And um, I think the, the, the story here is, is, is when I saw this on News 24, it broke, and within six hours, it was the most read story on News 24. It remained that way for two days. Um, Jacob Zuma reshuffles the cabinet, and um, you don't get the top read story for that article. So I think the, the point is that you know, non-disclosure and repudiating claims is, is a very emotive thing. Um, and it, it obviously stirs up people's emotions. And uh, I was sort of following, I was following social media, and, and I looked at my Facebook timeline, and, and I saw people there sort of rabbiting on about this particular case, and, and saying how Insurer X was a very horrible company, uh, and they would never purchase, they would never purchase a product from them again. So Insurer X um, eventually paid the claim um, after after lots of pressure, and. Um, Subsequent to that, another article came out subsequent to the payment of the claim, and, and once again, the part highlighted in yellow, which you probably can't really read, um, the article basically concluded, was it really necessary to go through all of this to do the right thing? So um, the conclusion there was that, you know, pay the claim even though there's non-disclosure because that's the right thing to do. Um, if, you, if you also look at the, the three little bubbles on the right-hand side, also, three articles that came out of publications uh, within the last three months, the FA News, the MoneyWeb, and the Fin24. So, uh, we, we were looking for a slide of, of famous people that had non-disclosed, um, and we managed to come up with the following. Um, this man, on his job application, said that he knew how to coach rugby. Okay, so, so the, background, the background to the survey, um, so effectively what happened was we, we you know, I suppose the question is why did, we, why did we do this survey? So there was consistent industry feedback that um, non-disclosure is a significant problem um, in our industry. It's hurting the industry, it's costing the industry money, it's creating sort of bad customer experiences. 
and uh, the current remedial actions that insurers are employing to try and, and drive this non-disclosure down in the market was yielding very inconsistent results. And the Ombudsman, as well in his reports, had pointed out that non-disclosure was on the increase and was becoming a problem. So we decided to conduct this industry survey um, and we, we realized at the start of this whole process that, that a number of these surveys have been conducted in the past. So we, we wanted to differentiate ourselves a little bit. Um, nine participants um, gave us data. Uh, these participants were from insurers that are operating in the retail affluent market space and in the fully underwritten insurance products. So the mass space where clients are not required to to make disclosure in some instances, they were excluded. Um, we really try to focus heavily on the definitions uh, that insurers used for non-disclosure, um, the processes and methods that they were using to try and detect that non-disclosure, um, and then we wanted to analyze um, the results um, and the reporting and actions which they had done to, to reduce the non-disclosure. Um, and we, we really aimed to differentiate by trying to calculate the future cost um, of non-disclosure that had already slipped through the existing checks and balances and were now embedded inside the book and then how to, to try and proactively reduce that incidence going forward. And my colleague Pedri will, will explain a little bit later on about how we calculated the value of that, of that embedded non-disclosure. So the question is, should we really be concerned about non-disclosure? And generally speaking, the, the findings, the overall findings from the survey was that South African insurers really adopt a very reactive approach. Um, almost we deal with it as we find it. Um, there, there wasn't really a much thought that was being put into trying to detect the non-disclosure and drive it down. Um, and really they were doing that in two places, one in the underwriting space and one in the claim space. And in the underwriting space, they were basically just acting on non-disclosure that they found when they were comparing disclosures made on the application form against other evidence which they had received. So, you know, what about the rest of the portfolio? That would be the non-disclosure that isn't picked up at underwriting or claim stage. Um, that results in either policies going on in force at standard rates where premiums, higher premiums should be collected um, or alternatively claims being paid that shouldn't be paid. Um, and we've basically concluded that additional methods are required to reduce this level of unknown non-disclosure that ends up being embedded in that experience. And non-disclosure has a significant impact on the insurer, the customer, and the industry as a whole. So it has a wide-ranging wide effect. So digging into the actual survey itself and the findings, we presented in the, um, in the survey questionnaire, we presented four four different definitions for non-disclosure. Um, this one that we're displaying over here was chosen by all nine participants as their definition for non-disclosure. And effectively, it's basically the withholding or misrepresenting of information that is of such an extent that it would change the underwriting terms that get offered on that policy. And we, sorry, uh, sorry, the colors are better. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we also asked the insurers to, to tell us how they were trying to detect non-disclosure um, and we presented five different options and the first option was a routine or discretionary check and, and that's where the application form comes in and the insurer asks for standard medical requirements or doctor's reports just to try and compare the disclosures given on the application against those reports. But 
not all insurers are calling for discretionary evidence. But that is the, the, one, the one method which, which they used. Second method, which was an interaction with the, with the applicant itself. It cuts out the distributor, it improves the customer journey. And there, by that, we mean those insurers that do teleunderwriting. So the financial advisor will basically submit an application or an intent to purchase a product from the insurer, and the insurer would then phone the client and ask the client the questions which are required for the underwriting of, of the application. And generally speaking, in that space, clients tend to be a little bit more honest, and the answers given aren't quite as filtered through a financial advisor, so you're getting a better level of disclosure through interaction with the applicant. Some clients were interacting with applicants after the policy was issued, um, and they do that by sending off a copy of the application form with all of the disclosure which they've received, and ask the client to effectively vet what is there and basically come back to the insurer and say, I disagree with some of the information that's here. Another option which we, which we presented was random post-issue sampling. So that would be where the application form is underwritten and accepted, and then randomly the insurer selects from a batch to call for additional medical evidence or speak to the client's doctor and check the information after issue against the information given, uh, which was being used for the underwriting acceptance. A further one was MI analysis, and by that what we were implying was the insurer really looks at the trends and patterns which they're seeing through their data and try to pick out the, the standouts or the red flags. Uh, a good example of that would be if a particular financial advisor only writes non-smokers or a particular financial advisor's client's body mass indexes are all below the threshold, below the loading threshold. Um, or a particular financial advisor only ever sends his clients to one doctor for the medical examinations to be done. And there we are obviously expecting clients to say, well, we, we, we're checking this data, we're monitoring it, and, and where we see a red flag, we then try to act on, on that red flag. And then the final one was the targeted post-issue sampling, which is effectively a, a continuation of the MI analysis where once you get the red flag, you do something about it and you do some further sampling. So from, from those methods um, which we presented, we also asked clients to give us their, um, their indication of, of what they're finding, how much non-disclosure they're finding inside their current processes. And, and, and um, so what, what we saw from that was that uh, results varied markedly. Um, some, some insurers would say for their life business only, the, the, the death cover only, they were picking up 10% non-disclosure through discretionary checking. Um, yet, other insurers were saying it would be 5%, um, and on the other product lines like PHR or disability or CI, they were getting a 10% non-disclosure rate. So we, we kind of were puzzled by, by those results, and we hypothesized that perhaps on the living benefits, because you stand more chance to benefit from non-disclosure because you're alive, <laughs> you are probably going to find more non-disclosure, and also the questions um, for those living benefits are a little bit more complex, so you might be finding a little bit more um, innocent non-disclosure that's taking place uh, for those benefits. Um, other results, uh, overall discretionary non-disclosure in the whole book ranged from 12% to 1%. One insurer said they were performing MI analysis, but they weren't really using the results to do anything. So it was very disjointed between different departments in, you know, in the company. It was just almost like a project that was happening on, on, on the sideline. Some person was interested in, in doing some MI analysis. 
So the conclusion is that the results were very, very, very varied, and they were picked up mainly through the underwriting process. The figures that we received, very rounded, didn't really feel like it was very accurate. Um, some insurers weren't really unable to split the numbers between benefits. Um, and we kind of got sort of a feeling of uncertainty um, you know, because there was no backing data behind, behind what we had received. So plotting that onto, onto a graph, what we saw in the South African market is that 78% of the respondents said that they were looking for non-disclosure through discretionary evidence. 22% were doing random post-issue sampling, and that came from a direct insurer. 0% um, were doing any targeted post-issue sampling, and 44% were doing uh, MR analysis. SCORE in the UK conducted a very similar survey in 2015. They polled UK and Irish insurers, um, and they used exactly the same sort of survey questionnaire set. Um, so we thought it would be interesting to try and, and you know, show the results of the, UK, of the UK study as well. And there we saw some very uh, different results. Discretionary evidence and random post, discretionary evidence was, was obviously lower. Random post-issue sampling significantly higher than our market. Um, targeted post-issue sampling, we had zero. You know, they had 46%, and, and MI analysis was very, very big um, on, on their list of things to do. So putting those together, it just kind of shows you that the UK is definitely doing more to detect non-disclosure. And, and I suppose the question that we really have um, is, are South African companies doing enough to manage non-disclosure? So Dwayne set it up quite perfectly here for me to, to ask questions about why is this important? Why do we really care about this? Who does it impact? And I'm really going to, you, you already referred to um, the differentiator of our survey. We wanted to show the financial impact on, on um, insurers as well as looking at the customer journey um, and the impact that it has on, on, on the customer. Now, it's not something that we usually associate with non-disclosure. Non-disclosure is done upon the insurer. So how does it really impact the customer journey? But with all the focus these days on the whole customer journey from the front to the back end, um, we thought it would really be interested to, um, to show some results there. So firstly, I'm going to show a simple um, example uh, calculation. And it basically starts with our four standard underwriting decisions. So you get standard rates. You get loaded rates, you get cases that the exclusions are applied, and you get cases that's declined. So I went to the underwriting guys and I asked them, what is the average extra mortality loading that you see for each of these, of these um, decisions? And basically, obviously, exclusions and declines are a bit of an anomaly because, I mean, the risk management method is that you apply the exclusion or you decline the case. Um, but we asked them to give, them, give it their best shot so that we can at least make this example work. So this is what we came up with. Okay, obviously, standard rates has 0% extra mortality. Uh, loaded cases, we got to an average of 50%. And for exclusions and cases that's declined, we got to an extra mortality of 225%. Applying that to a standard portfolio mix uh, that we assumed 75% standard cases, 50% uh, loadings, and 5% uh, 
uh, exclusions and declines, we basically got to an average weighted loading of 30%. So we charge on average 30% across our book. We'll be right as rain. We'll be able to pay our claims and make our margin. That's in the absence of any non-disclosure. So what, how does this picture change if we have non-disclosure present? And we're going to assume that the non-disclosure, as Dwayne said, slipped through the cracks, got accepted at standard rates, and um, this is basically how the business mix changed then. So we just re-weighted re the, the other three um, decisions uh, to get to, to the new proportions. And now our weighted loading all of a sudden increases to 42% which is basically effective cost to the margin of the insurer of around nine and a quarter percent. So if we attach some money to this, what does this mean? So for an insurer that writes 25,000 risk policies per annum, so for one year's worth of new business, with an average annual premium of around 10,000 rand policy, we basically get the present value of the cost to this insurer over the lifetime of the, of the policy of around 140 million rand which is quite significant. Now, I'm not saying that insurers are, are making losses of 140 million rand. Obviously, insurers are, are making money. Otherwise, none of us would probably sit here. But I just what I'm trying to get across here is that the value locked in your margin or in your portfolio due to non-disclosure is quite significant. I want to just show a few other impacts um, to the insurers. So one is a client-specific adjustment impact. It's maybe not a term that everyone's familiar with, but it's something that we use in reinsurance pricing to give credit for processes that's in place um, during the underwriting process. And non-disclosure checking the processes, the act, if you're checking it actively, will be one element that feeds into this, um, this CSA uh, adjustment or client-specific adjustment, and um, it will, can give you credit on your, on your reinsurance rates up front. Next, more gray claims and uncertainty, whether non-disclosure can be spotted and acted upon at claim stage, especially in the long-term nature of our, of our industry. Do um, you get to a point where you really can't, can't act if you pick it up, if you can act on it um, at claim stage? And we all know the ombudsman's dim view on, on disputed claims, especially way into the future. And Dwayne has already, has already highlighted the reputational risk um, and, the cost, and the cost of disputed claims to the insurers. Next, I want, to, I want to quickly touch on how this may impact the customer. So firstly, the cost of non-disclosure will eventually come through in the experience and the standard rates will increase. So the higher premium rates for everybody. That means the guys that disclose honestly and get standard rates will get a higher standard rate. Those that disclose honestly and get rated will be rated on top of a higher standard rate. And I guess the only guys that really win here is the guys that non-disclose, either intentionally or unintentionally at the start, and it doesn't get picked up at claim stage. So that's the first one. That's the premium impact, affordability. We know how big a, how big a issue that currently is in our country. Next is a sentence that I actually wrote, but I had to read 30 times before I actually understood it. Um, so I'm going to give you one shot at it. So what I'm trying to get at here is, does, the, does our lack of understanding our embedded non-disclosure rates um, prohibit us from making changes to the onboarding process um, that would improve the customer's journey. And I'm talking about medical evidence required at the outset. Are we asking for medical evidence that we don't really need if we can get a better handle on our non-disclosure rates, just before, because we wanted to really cover ourselves? 
can we make improvements to the application, application form and questions? Can we make it more tailored to certain cohorts of business? And can we also recalibrate our, our non-medical limit grids um, and ask for less or more correct um, information? And then lastly, obviously on the, on the customer, we also get the, the impact of disputed claims. When they are banking on us to, make, to fulfill the promise that we made to them a couple of years, maybe sometimes 10, 20 years back, we are now all of a sudden in the most dire state disputing claims. So as Dwayne said, a similar survey was conducted in the UK, and I'm going to run through a few, a few of their high-level results and maybe a few, a few learnings that we can take from that. So firstly, this is the spread of their, of their non-disclosure rates reported. So on your y-axis is the non-disclosure rates, and on your, just on your x-axis just runs the, the number of companies. So you can see it's quite varied, but there's two important things that I want to highlight here. Is firstly, all these numbers are through random post-issue sampling approach. As Duane already mentioned, we believe that is the best way of, of, of really detecting the, the embedded non-disclosure in your portfolio. Um, secondly, they've given the numbers one digit, so it looks very credible, um, but that's not really, that's not really the case. They, they actually, all the companies could provide the data that was backing, that was backing these, these numbers, the resource that they, that they dedicated to actually try and get a better handle on the non-disclosure and actively reduce it. I think just H on uh, my right hand side, your left, uh, no, your right hand side as well. So. Um, it's just a bit of an anomaly. That's a, that's a bank insurer that, doesn't, that does very limited, very limited underwriting. So that's kind of like why we see the, the, low, the low number there. Next companies, there's actually three companies that could actually break it down into a more granular level. So they could do it by some assured age and gender. So I'm just showing you males uh, and, and, the, and the age breakdown. So you should look at this. One of these layers basically reflect or you know, represents one company. So for the first company, basically, they're saying that males uh, younger than 30 non-disclose 10 to 12% of the time. And um, then between 30 and 59, basically greater than 20, and then it tapers down again. So this, again, just gives them a better handle on exactly where to focus their, their attention. Can they maybe make tailor-made application forms that targets on certain areas, certain cohorts of business, to try and capture the risk more accurately. Also, this can also be very useful in the calibration of, of um, non-medical limit grids, uh, especially the sum assured one um, and the age breakdown. It's quite an interesting one. This is a top 10 non-disclosed conditions in the UK. Now, I'm not going to say that this is different in South Africa, it's most likely very similar. Um, but you can see that basically mental health, musculoskeletal, can't believe I pronounced that correctly in front of you all, um, and BMI basically makes up 50% of the, the most non-disclosed conditions in the UK. And this allows the UK market, they've really worked hard in the past couple of years to getting that 22% down actually. And this allows them to to really go to the application form design, try to see if the questions that they ask are relevant. They've, they've done a lot of work with medical professionals um, to try and simplify down their, their questions, make it understandable to myself 
the layman and everyone that actually has to answer the questions. I think in South Africa we're still very dependent on the brokers sometimes to explain questions. But how informed are they really to, to understand the, all the medical jargon? And they also got, what's quite interesting, they got, they'll have primary questions. So example, have you ever had depression? And then if you say no, then later on in the, in the application form when you forgot that you actually never had depression, they would ask that, is there any cross-check question that you can maybe, maybe try? And have you ever felt blue in the last 30 to 60 days? So just these little, little things that they try to cross-check, try, try and establish if there's any non-disclosure in the applications. The other one that's quite interesting here is the, is the BMI one. Um, I guess it's that, that thing of my BMI still suggests that I'm too short. Um, <laughs> But I think, I think what, what, what comes out here is, is what they've done to, to really try and get uh, independent checks on the BMI. So they ask for your waist size, they ask for your dress size, your pants size. We'll see an we'll example of an application form later on. They'll ask for all those, all those things to try and like, just get, do a cross-reference to the, to the weight and height that you, you actually disclosed. Um, another one that's quite interesting here is, is the smoking one, which is quite... Uh, low down on the list, but I chatted to Dwayne, and he said he's probably similar in South Africa, given the fact that we, we still do mostly the, the cotinine test. But the UK is much different, different here, so they are extremely penal on lifestyle non-disclosures, like smoking. They say that you know whether you smoke or not, so if you're going to non-disclose on that, they, they don't do like the normal reconstructions and, and stuff like that. They'll, they'll be much more penal on, on that, either apply penalty and then reconstruct, or there's even some players who just outright decline. Or the period. Okay, this is a this is quite an interesting graph. Um, uh, let me just give some context. It's bubbles that has a number in it, and the y-axis, the higher the number, the higher it's on the y-axis. But I haven't got to figure out what the x-axis is yet. So I think it's I think it's just there. It's just like bubbles floating around. So the question here was. Who do you actually share the information of your non-disclosure analysis with? And luckily, no one just kept it in the underwriting department, and everyone shared it with the senior management, um, including the product pricing um, and claims teams. Uh, there's actually quite a few that shared it with the reinsurance, reinsurance which were quite, were quite interesting. But the thing that I want to um, emphasize here is the two companies that actually shared the results with their intermediaries actually recorded the lowest non-disclosure rates. And it's a very delicate situation because you don't want your intermediaries to get the idea that you are constantly looking over their shoulders. And, but I think, I think just the whole thing of you are able to split, split it by intermediaries and you are actively able to track what type of business comes from which intermediaries really make the, the, the intermediaries in the UK um, set up and take notice of this. There's actually one company, I, th I think it's Zurich in Ireland, you guys can Google it, it's, they actually bought out a brochure, just a two-page or one-pager that basically just explains the whole non-disclosure um, practice and, and, and the possible consequences to their brokers. It's actually a broker, they distribute it to their brokers uh, primarily. Next is, uh, I'm going to move on to some application design features. Um, so I don't have it on you, so please also don't try and read too much into this. I'll just highlight what's, what's important. 
So not on here is you always sign on, on the first page. I know a lot of South African companies have also adopted that practice these days. It has been known that once you put your signature down on something, you are very likely to, to more honestly disclose, kind of like take the oath before you testify. On the UK designs, which is quite interesting, is this bit that's highlighted in yellow. Like on every page, they make you aware of the potential consequences of non-disclosure. Um, here's another example. Sorry, that one's actually smaller. It's actually the worst example. Yeah. Just, it's in your face all the time. You're constantly aware of the potential impact of non-disclosure and the consequences of it. Now, one of our colleagues that actually um, comes from the UK, he says he doesn't actually know how this has bearing on the customer journey because you fill in this form and you just like, after every page, you're asking, well, when are, we, are they ever going to pay a claim, really? It's like, it's... Yeah, there's just another one of the, the disclaimer at the top. Um, one company has actually, has actually just done some analysis on introducing a third eye at the top. Um, they have never, they never took their application forms to market to that, but it's just kind of like, uh, I mean, we are checking you. Uh, can you please disclose honestly? So maybe you guys can try it. Um, and you, you can see there, sorry, if you, if you are able to read this, there's, there's just one example of the UK, the dress size, the skirt size, and the pants size uh, that they try to, to kind of like just gauge uh, the BMI, the BMI disclosures. One company actually has done, gone a bit further, and they've basically issued additional risk selection reports. And it's basically a template that they send to the customer's um, doctor that's very simple and easy to fill in. And it targets uh, cohorts of people that basically are very likely to non-disclose. So that kind of like feeds back into that previous slide of the age and gender, the age and gender split. That's kind of like, that is one way of identifying who to get, who to get these um, reports on. Because I think one of the problems in South Africa has always been, if you want to PMA or GPR, I can't remember which is the South African and the UK one. PMA report, Dwayne. Yeah, PMA report. If you want a PMA report from your, doc, from your client's doctor, it's not always prioritized. It takes very long. The format is not always that great. As I said, it's not, very, it's not prioritized. The doctor can rather see another client than, than fill in your, your PMA. But this is really aimed to be quick and easy to complete. Um, and it's, as I said, it can cover a variety of conditions, lifestyle, health, health factors, and it just tries to give you that additional um, uh, information on the, on the guys that you haven't got any medicals on yet. So you can, you can relate that back to the application forms. Oh. This is a slide on data analytics, and I know there's been some pretty heavy sessions on data analytics and generalized linear models at this convention, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and, and speak about that. But what they try to do is, they try to basically get the data from the auto underwriting engine and build a simple GLM to make them predict the number of disclosures uh, that they would expect from certain, certain codes of business. So in this case, basically, they, they controlled for the distribution channel, the direct channel, the IFA channel, and the tied agents channel. And basically what it's telling us is that for the direct channel, again, in the absence of the advisor, 
you basically get more disclosures than you would expect. Um, so that's good. On the IFA channel, you get basically what you expect. And on the tide channel, you actually get less than you expect. So true to the UK, they went and they dug a bit deeper into the tide channel, because there's obviously some, some anomaly there. It's not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong, but they would like to, to have explanation for that. And that's how it looked basically by sales agent. So you can see sales agents A to, I guess, E. There's a major problem, sales agents. Um, especially, I mean, A, B, and C, you can see you get significantly less disclosures than you would expect from the model. At the far right-hand side, you're obviously getting more than we expected, so that's good. It can also be an efficiency thing. Are we asking too much questions and similar um, to get that ratio closer to 100%? But I think, I think what this allows them to do is basically, as Dwayne said earlier, um, they can verify the GLM by doing a targeted post-issue sampling um, exercise and really dig, dig into each of these sales agents to see why are we not getting the dis disclosures that we expected. I think one of the, an interesting example was actually one of these, there was nothing wrong, it was a business mix thing. So they basically, the, the sales agent was selling to people at his gym or something. So you would not expect, like, I guess, crazy amount of, of disclosures. So, I mean, that's explaining it at least. So I hope I, I, hope I um, convinced you a bit about the value that non-disclosure has and the impact that it has on, on insurance companies and, and the customers. Um, I, think, I think yesterday in a session in this room we were talking about change and how insurance companies need to change um, to, to stay ahead of the times, and I agree totally with that. But I don't always think it, it comes in the form of, of disruption or revolutionizing the, the industry or transforming the industry. I think this can also be one very important aspect where we can enact change. Okay, so um, Pedri spent a fair amount of time um, going through the UK market and, and the specific mechanisms which they employ to try and, and drive their non-disclosure rates down. And um, what we could see over there is it's a lot more detailed, there's a lot more thoroughness to, to their processes. Um, and that, to a certain degree, has, has driven their, their base risk rates down. So you know, our colleague, who is from the UK, has told us that people in the UK lie just as much as people in South Africa, um, yet, yet the price is cheaper. It's because insurers are doing a better job at trying to pick up the liars and, and keeping them out of their risk pools. So just to move on to some conclusions um, and the way that uh, we think our industry should go forward, is uh, clearly non-disclosure is costing the industry money and, and as, it, as Pedri has pointed out, it, it does impact on the customer journey. Um, one of the things that we, we originally tried to set out to do in the survey was to try and figure out exactly how much it was costing the South African industry, but the, the data really wasn't um, granular enough for us to, to work out that exact number. Yet I think the, the example that Pedri gave does give an indication of just how big that number could be um, if, we, if we did have a better handle on, on the data. Um, and, and although in the South African context, companies are, are trying to monitor some non-disclosure and, and try to drive it out of the book, it's still very much largely on an ad hoc basis. 
and it's built on, on a model that has been in, in, in play for 50 years. You know, let's just underwrite, let's call for, for medicals, let's get doctors to, to write reports, and, and let's just check to see if clients are lying. Uh, we, we don't think that the South African industry ha has revolutionized enough, um, and we think there's some lessons that they could take from, from the UK market. So uh, you know, our conclusions is, is that not enough post-issue sampling is being done, certainly randomized post-issue sampling. Um, it, you know, one could argue that, that doing sort of underwriting checks after the policy has been accepted is probably not the right way to go. Um, you know, the, the counter argument to that is that insurers try to set themselves up to try and get new business to move through the process as quickly as they possibly can to get a premium from the client to pay the broker their commission. Um, so you've got to balance the two. Um, I would argue that if you do post-issue sampling and you're able to drive non-disclosure out of your book after you've accepted the policy, it's still way better than repudiating the claim when you find it at claim stage. Um, certainly not enough MI analysis is being done um, and it's not being shared with the appropriate parties. Um, and you know, we, we also believe that there, there needs to be increased industry collaboration uh, which is required to detect non-disclosure. So in the past, we used to have, in the underwriters space, we used to have a thing called the LOA database. Um, it's now the CISA Life Register. And we used to, where you picked up non-disclosure on the particular individual, you used to flag that individual on the database. So if that individual applied for another insur uh, insurance policy at another company, they could check the database and they, uh, they could pick up a flag and then obviously act on that. Um, that, that practice has kind of largely fallen by the wayside now. We, we as an industry don't, don't flag individuals anymore. And, and it's fairly common. In my, in, my, um, in my area of expertise, I see it fairly often. So as a reinsurer, um, we would see an application from client A through insurer B. And then when insurer B gives bad terms, you'd see that same client come through insurer C. Uh, and then when that insurer gives bad terms, you'd eventually see the same client come through insurer D, and now suddenly the disclosures that the client gives are, are actually quite good. And, and obviously, through that process, the client and or the financial advisor has picked up the, the uh, trigger points um, through the application process that is resulting in a, in a non-standard decision. So you're getting a behavioral modification that takes place um, as, as financial advisors are, are putting their, their applications through the system. Um, and we think that increasing industry collaboration would, would probably prevent that. Um, and then also there can be alternative methods um, which insurers can use to obtain risk assessment data um, and we think that should be utilised to try and detect non-disclosure. Uh, Pedri referred early on to, to the UK example where they, they do a, a targeted report which they, they write to the doctor and the doctor then provide some feedback. Now in the UK it's fairly simple because they have the NHS. So all medical records are centralized. It's easy to access them. In the South African context it's very disjointed. Um, you write to a doctor and particularly if it's a specialist, a cardiologist for example, you, you know you'll wait three months for that for that report to come back and then it'll cost the insurer you know a thousand rand. Um, and, uh, and then the report will have like two or three lines on it. So, so in, in our scenario, it's probably, it's probably not um, the most applicable to rights to doctors, um, but what insurers could do is, is when they're assessing new applications, um, they, can, they can check the astute database to see if insured, insured lives have got policies elsewhere. 
And if they find these individuals, they can write to those insurance companies and ask them to share their data to do some comparative checks. So we think the results from improved non-disclosure checking definitely needs to feed back into pricing, uh, the onboarding and the claims process. Um, as a result, we think that you know, you'll treat the customers fairly, uh, you'll probably provide a, a cheaper premium, and, and obviously the onboarding process would be uh, targeted and, and more appropriate to the individual. Um, if you're a 20-year-old, for example, applying for an insurance policy, you know, what really is the point of, of answering 15 medical questions that ask whether you've had a heart attack, whether you've had cancer, whether you've had a stroke? You know, those questions are completely irrelevant for that, for that subset of, of, of individuals. So we, we think, we know, certainly from the UK exa examples, that reducing the true underlying non-disclosure rate does save the customer money, improves the customer journey, um, and more importantly, ensures less uncertainty at claim stage. The opening slide that we showed where the, the claim was repudiated because the client had not told the insurer that he or she had diabetes would hopefully not have taken place if this type of, of checking is done. Um, furthermore, pretty important for insurers, increasing profit margin, uh, reducing ombuds and legal disputes, um, and certainly driving down insurers' reputational risks. Um, I don't know about you, but generally, um, if I speak to my friends and say to them that I work in the insurance industry, they kind of like screw their eyes and, you know, they don't really like us a whole bunch. So I think sometimes we, we need to do a bit more to try and change that, and, and certainly if we could pay more claims, more valid claims, um, I think that'll go a long way to, 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 to helping us rebuild our image. And uh, that's basically the end of our presentation. So it's over to you, Nikki. Thank you. Uh, we've got some time for questions now, so I don't know. I think there's a roving microphone. Does anybody have a question? There's a question in the front here. Hi, it's Adolfo from Liberty. Thanks for the presentation. Just wanted to check, um, so you mentioned I guess people lie as much uh, as they do in the UK, maybe around the world. Um, how much do you think, though, is kind of the better risk rates that uh, UK insurers are able to offer is due to taking a harder line when it comes to repudiation? I mean, there's a legal contract between two parties. Are we less willing or less able because of kind of the South African context to take hard, a harder line of repudiation? So yeah, I don't, I don't know really where it originated from in the South African context, but if you, if you think of a, of a smoker that says he's a non-smoker on his application form and basically comes to claim stage and he says, okay, this guy has actually died of lung cancer, and then you apply the dead cot principle and he just goes back to the underwriting decision. So what, in, what um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? No. Uh, I can't get to the word. To motivating, motivation. Uh, does that guy actually have to, to say that he's a smoker if you're just going to reconstruct his policy in any way at smoker rates? So I guess there's something there. I think it's, it's starting to come through in, in some companies who, 
who are trying to to uh, apply a penalty uh, before they reconstruct or reconstruct and then apply a penalty. Um, but I do think that the UK context, the more the more you know, penal view that they have on, on certain certainly stuff that has a deliberate non-disclosure connected to it um, improves their risk rates. And um, maybe Dwayne, you can comment on. I mean, I know some of the some of the companies have started rating rating also lower to try and clean out their standard rates book uh, to make it more more well more clean and, and cheaper. So I don't know if you want to just act on that. Yeah, so just to add on to, to what Pedri um, has, has said, so in, in the European space, they've, they've been much more careful about trying to define non-disclosure. So they, they talk about innocent non-disclosure and deliberate non-disclosure. Um, they don't have the same uh, almost blanket reconstruction um, mindset that, that our local ombud has. So in, in our context, we are finding claims being reconstructed and being paid, which wouldn't be paid in the UK because they have very strict definitions about what is deliberate and, and what is uh, not intentional non-disclosure. So clearly, if something is deliberate, their ombudsman takes a very harsh view and says, you knew about this, you were trying to defraud, you're not going to get paid. Whereas in, in our case, um, the ombud is still saying, well, you know, let's, let's try and be, be nice to the client. Um, had you known about this information, what would you have done? And, and our argument has been, well, we would have rated the client plus 500% extra mortality if we had known about that. But the reality is that client most likely wouldn't have accepted that policy at that loading because if we look at the current data that we have, when we do rate policies at, at those levels, clients just don't accept them. So to, to answer the question and say, well, to what extent has the UK's approach driven the price down, I can't really answer that question. I don't have enough information about it. But from our, our colleague who is from the UK, um, who, who's in our office, they have really worked hard at trying to put pressure on financial advisors. I wouldn't really say so much clients. It, it's more financial advisors. They've tried to put pressure on them to, to basically ensure that customers are giving them absolutely clear information that has an underwriting impact that can change the terms that policy has been accepted at. Thank you. Sorry, sorry, Nikki. Just interestingly on that, there's actually in the French market, I think, they've, they've bought this thing in your right to forget. So that should actually work the opposite way. So I think after 10 years or something, you are not obliged to, to disclose anything that happened more than 10 years back. And um, I, I mean, I don't really know. I don't think I agree with that because if you're 60 years old, you do remember the operation that you had when you were 20 years old. It's not, I mean, you have the right to forget, but it's, you don't really forget. So interesting. Sorry, can I just add a little bit more to that? It's not, <laughs> it's not that you're obliged to, you're allowed to forget. So <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is still a, a requirement for the individual to, to try and disclose as much as, as you can. Um, but if you don't disclose um, something that happened more than, in, in France's case, five years ago, um, if you don't disclose it, the ombud can't use it and the insurer can't use it to penalize you at claim stage. Um, if you think about the South African context, it, most claims departments do take a much more softer approach in terms of looking for non-disclosure when the policies reach about seven or eight years old. 
it has to be really blatant and in their face, okay, to, for them to then repudiate. So really in policies that are between one and three years old, you'll, you'll find that they dig very deep. Um, and so the whole right to forget clause, whilst I personally disagree with it, um, it, it, it probably hasn't got such a big impact um, because those individuals would probably have had policies that are five or six or seven years old anyway before the claim comes in, and then they wouldn't have been investigated deeply at claim stage. Hi, I'm John from Insurer X. <laughs> uh, just a, a comment and a question. Uh, the, the first comment, when we, we talk about non-disclosure and these miserable people who lie, very often it's not them who finally impacted, it's actually their beneficiaries. Um, and, and I think that's where the, the, the whole emotion around the, the repudiation of claims come from. There's this person who wasn't involved in the lying, who, who thought they were about to get cover, is, is now not receiving cover. So I, I have some sympathy for, for where the ombud comes from when, when they're, they're trying to reconstruct and, and get insurers to pay, because it's the, the beneficiaries. And the, the question, I have is there's all the buzzwords around big data and, and social media. Uh, to what extent are companies in, in the UK and US, to, to your understanding, uh, pulling information that is now publicly available from people's social media streams to, to find evidence of, of non-disclosure? Is it happening? Um, should it be happening? Um, from social media, I don't I actually talk to a crowd in South Africa once who's trying to to extract all this information from social media. Um, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure in, in the U.S. market. I know that that we have an underwriting service in the in the U.S. that basically underwrites on publicly informa available information, which is your motor vehicle accidents, a bit more on the short term side, and, and and a central database of of pharmaceutical records. Um, so I mean that those things can be pulled easily, I guess, if you, if you can find a link between that and, and checking for non-disclosure. Uh, on your question about should we use it, um, these days I think the Ombudsman already taking such a dim view on when we get proper information. I don't know how we would how we'd view really if we get something from social media and trying to repudiate a claim on that. Um, so personally I don't think uh, on the basis of um, of repudiating a claim, social media will be work, um, working, but I do think that it can give you an area to focus on and and kind of like dig a bit deeper and to find the, a proper means of, of, of seeing if, if non-disclosure is present. Um, I'd also just like to add, um, I would regard the checking of, of social media as being akin to doing some MR analysis. So if you find something in social media, then you need to dig deeper. You need to find out a bit more. I don't think it's appropriate to just completely ignore it. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate that it gets used in the claim space, but certainly I think in the onboarding and underwriting space it has, it has some value. And I, I know personally from a, um, an example um, that came through our office where an individual 
had said that he you know, had previously owned some kind of a sort of quasi-military slash security company um, and, you know, and he was, was going into sort of like dangerous situations and that type of thing. Um, and then in his disclosures on the application form, he, he had said that he, um, you know, he had kind of left that business behind and, and now he was an upstanding citizen and, and, and doing 100% admin. Um, the very first picture on his social media page, his Facebook page, which I, I went and had a look at, was of him standing there with an AK-47 and a flak jacket on in Somalia. So whilst we didn't use that information to immediately decline, we, we did use that information to ask further questions. Um, another example comes to mind where a guy had said that he was riding a superbike um, and he, he was doing some, some occasional track days, um, but he was being you know, very careful and, and very safe with, with the operation of this machine. And um, there were video clips of him on YouTube racing through the Midlands with his friends and you could see the speedometer on the bike was like touching 300. So <laughs> what I'm saying is, is I think insurers need to leverage from all the possible opportunities that they have. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't go back and say, well, we saw your Facebook picture, you're now declined. Um, but it would certainly help to try and weed the I want to say under disclosure um, and, and perhaps non-disclosure out, out of the system. Uh, just, just to add, sorry, sorry, Nikki. Just to add on that is also I think some companies are starting to use voice recognition um, uh, software to basically see if someone is telling the truth, but I don't think they they are really using that to to make an underwriting or claims decision and and take those disclosures as 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 being 100% correct. They, they're just using that to basically set up and see where they can basically target a bit deeper. One, one more bit from me. <laughs> okay, going, going back to your original point about, um, you know, when a claim is repudiated, uh, certainly in, in, in a death claim scenario, you know, it's the, it's the family that's, you know, the, the, the departed, oh, not the departed, the, the family that's obviously the ones that are in, in the worst circumstances. And it's the worst time for us to really be messing around. Um, and that, that really just highlights a point that, that we as an industry need to create more certainty about claims payment. We need to make a bigger effort. We, we can't just simply say, well, well, the guy lied, sorry, we're going to repudiate the claim, sorry for you. We, we, we kind of copping out, I think, uh, as an industry. We, we need to put more effort into trying to stop that stuff from happening at the beginning so that we don't have to have those difficult conversations at the end of the process. Are there any more questions? I mean, just, just on that, so if you do all this work um, as a company and then you discover that there's been non-disclosure, so the guy took out the policy a month ago, you do this work and you find there's been non-disclosure, what do you do then? Do you, how do you then broach to have the discussion at that point and What's the ombudsman likely to say about that? Yes, I think, I think it's very important here to, to distinguish between deliberate non-disclosure and, and non-deliberate or unintentional non-disclosure, which is basically just a function of, of how us as insurers processes work. And the fact that they slip through the cracks is not their own fault. It's probably, probably more down to us. Um, I think Dwayne alluded to it briefly earlier. I think the ombudsman view on something that is deliberate, um, you would much rather take action early in the policy than at leaving it at, 
uh, to claim stage and reconstructing early in the policy or whatever the case is. Um, for something that's not deliberate, I think it's probably going to be a very tough ask to, to re reconstruct the policy given that, that you are the one, the insurer is the one that actually, actually did it, wasn't clear at, at the application stage. And that is possibly just something that we can use proactively going forward to make sure that, that it doesn't really happen again. Um, that's, it's, not a, it's not an easy conversation to have with the financial advisor or the client, so, so let's not kid ourselves. It's, it's not really a situation that you want to be in, um, but it's a far better situation to be in cancelling a policy whilst the person is still alive than not paying the claim and then having social media going bananas on you because you haven't paid a claim, which you shouldn't have paid because the client non-disclosed. Um, that type of stuff probably flies under the radar a bit better. And to be honest with you, we will then be paying out 100% of all the claims that we get rather than repudiating some of them because some clients uh, you know, haven't, and haven't told the truth. I mean, I, I don't have the, the, the magic bullet for how you start that conversation um, with the client or, or with the broker, but my, my assumption would be that as an insurer, you should try to, to see if you can come to some kind of a negotiated settlement between yourself and the client. So perhaps you know, have a discussion, reduce the cover because you're saying, well, actually you should have this extra premium that you should be paying, or alternatively, if the client agrees to pay the extra premium, then you maintain the policy as it is. But at least that way, when you get the claim, you make the claim payment. There's time for one more question over there. So if you, so if you cancel the policy, do you refund the premiums? Sorry, I, I didn't get the question. Can you just repeat? If you cancel the policy, do you then refund the premiums back to the client? Sorry, can I, can I go? Um, if, you, if you cancel the policy before the claim stage, my, my, personal, uh, my personal opinion is to, is to pay back the premiums. Um, if you want to, you could put in some kind of charge because I'm assuming you would have incurred some costs um, and you can work that back um, you know, and, and recover that. Uh, but, but certainly in my, my view would be you, you've done enough to prevent the policy reaching a claim stage, you should return the premiums. Anyone else? There we go. Hi. Hello? Yeah. Uh, my name is Yuri. Um, you mentioned in your presentation uh, the customer, and yet we're all discussing from the point of the insurer. I still struggle to see uh, what is the benefit or incentive for the customer to give you full disclosure. So the guy on the motorbike, his, uh, his goal is to, or the interest is to make sure he's covered when he does stupid stuff on the motorbike. Um, I just don't see from his perspective what, what are we doing as an industry to uh, incentivize them to be truthful. You know, it's like a cat and mouse <laughs> kind of game to me. Um, okay, so when we, when we talk about the customer, obviously we're not just talking about the person who's insured. Um, there's obviously, you know, a wider set of individuals who, who are linked to that policy. So in the case of a death claim, uh, the significant benefit is that you pay the claim out. Somebody actually gets what, you know, what they're expecting. Um, that's the first thing. I think in terms of improving the customer journey as well, uh, we were talking about the onboarding process or the whole application process. So if we go back to, to Piedri's slide where a particular UK insurer 
had seen a very high level of non-disclosure in a particular area. And if you then go and model your, your onboarding questions or your application questions around that, for that individual, there probably wouldn't be an improved customer experience because they're going to have to answer more questions. But in other areas where you're finding much lower levels of non-disclosure, you can actually make the onboarding process far simpler. And more importantly, when you start getting the better experience through improved non-disclosure detection, you drive the premiums down. So that's a significant improvement for the customer as far as I'm concerned. Um, working in a company who does significant post-issue um, disclosure checking, I can attest to the fact that cancelling a policy midterm, even though you're saving the intermediary tied or not tied IFA and the customer significant stress and hassle later, they definitely hate you for it. Um, you never get someone who writes to you, thank you for being TCF on me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, you're doing the right thing, but it inevitably creates very bad sentiment. Even intentional, non-intentional, doesn't matter. They still don't like it. And there's one more right in the front, I think. Linda? Coming from a, a totally non-insurance background, uh, but obviously being somebody who purchases insurance, um, we've talked about refund of premiums if you discover non-disclosure during the process. What about discounting the actual benefit payout by premiums that you would have charged? Does any company ever do that? Um, so I'm not not actually sure if you if you pick it up midterm. I, I know at claim stage, then obviously you you can reconstruct your policy, and they will reduce they will reduce your your cover amount up to the level that that was commensurated with what you actually paid and what your risk reflected. During. But I'm not 100% sure, Dwayne, if you have anything if it if it gets cancelled midterm and kind of like if you if you have a paid up scenario that you have paid for this and you can just continue this reduced cover um, throughout the, the policy lifetime. I'm not 100% sure. So I'd probably um, echo Piri's comment there. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I understand the question, but I, I would think if you're referring to um, you know, discounting a client's premium or let's say creating some kind of a super rate category or, or, or no, um, where clients get best possible terms for being absolutely honest with you. I mean, I think that would be a business decision that gets taken by the insurer that actually employs a, a tighter non-disclosure um, and checking process. So, Pedri did refer um, in, in the presentation that when reinsurers pass on risk rates, they take into account you know, the, the thoroughness and the level of checking and, and the effectivity of that checking. And, and if it's good, they certainly can provide premium discounts. Now, as an insurer, if you want to, you can pass that premium discount on to your most honest clients and give them a discount and keep the rest at the same level. Um, it really is up to, up to the insurer to decide how they want to, to use the process in a positive way. Okay, I think the time's up now. Um, we're now going to break for half an hour for refreshments. So I want to say thank you very much to Pedri and Dwayne for an interesting presentation and discussion. Thank you.